Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. It's a cold one around the hot plate of public affairs this week as we take the temperature and feel the chill in China's relationships in the region. And is Donald Trump right that China is a threat to the world or should we believe Donald Trump who thinks that Xi Jinping is a great leader? And we ring the chicha changes as Greta Thunberg proves that all is not hunky-dory and these children that you spit on as they try to change their world are immune to the consultations of the world's thin white gammons. That's democracy sausage. Hi there, I'm Mark Kenny from the ANU's Australian Studies Institute, and thanks for giving us your time again on Democracy Sausage, the podcast that joins together the gristle of politics on one side of Lake Burley Griffin with the nourishing meat of expert analysis from the Australian National University, sitting opposite the lake, of course. Joining us today is Dr. Graham Smith from the Coral Bell School of Asia-Pacific Affairs and co-host of Little Red Podcast. An expert on that region and therefore on the proxy war, I guess you could call it, uh, for prime influence being waged in the Pacific between Canberra and Beijing. Graham, great to uh, have you here in the uh, in the intimate studio here at the Crawford School. Good to be back. And it's a warm welcome also to Lyndall Curtis, a former colleague of mine up in the press gallery, a long-time stalwart, stalwart of Canberra journalism. Lyndall, great to have you here. It's lovely to be here, Mark. Now, today I'd like to talk a bit about, well, there's obviously a lot going on, uh, a lot going on in the, in the US, a lot going on in the UK and, and, and everywhere else, I guess. But um, today I'd like to talk about uh, particularly Australia-China relations and by extension, um, the relationship that's uh, under some tension at the moment. Uh, Graham, here at The Sausage, of course, we're fierce advocates of freshness, of course. You know, we don't, we don't go for this frozen stuff. Um, but we hear that the relationship is in the deep freeze. Is, is that really the case, that the Australia-Chinese relationship or China relationship is in the deep freeze? Uh, yeah, that's not too, terribly far off the mark. Uh, the one consolation for Australia is we're not the only nation that's in the deep freeze. It's getting quite crowded in the freezer. Um, <laughs> so we've joined by the United States, we're joined by Canada, um, and I think Germany is on the way to joining us there uh, as well. Uh, they've long been well and truly in the fresh crisper compartment of the fridge, um, but Germany <laughs> is starting to realise that uh, China's strategy is very much targeting them as well as Japan and Korea to sort of substitute, uh, you know, basically German technology, German exports with Chinese technology and Chinese exports. So uh, the deep freeze is getting pretty crowded. So we, we have company at least. Now, is this sort of, Lendl, do you think just kind of to be expected? I mean, China is an emerging economy. It's an emerging superpower. Um, it's 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 massive. It's only getting stronger, both strategically and economically. Uh, is is it inevitable that it's going to be sort of have its elbows out, flexing its muscles, and that those powers that by definition are, are sort of having to cede 
some space to it are going to uh, see there you know have, have there's going to be tension in the relationship I think it is inevitable that when a power starts flexing up its muscles there are some people who are going, some countries who are going to flex back and that will inevitably lead to some tension I think the thing I'm I've been fascinated about with China and we've been talking about it for a long time and nobody's got an answer to the question is particularly for Australia and probably the same for countries like Germany is your old strategic partner, the United States, and your new economic partner, China. How do we live with both of them? I'm sure, Mark, you ask this question all the time. I don't know anyone who's answered it. And I think you know, we're, we're looking now at a world where other countries are dealing with the same sorts of questions is how you deal with a rising China that is clearly flexing its muscles militarily by building islands where islands didn't used to be, but economically too and strategically by initiatives like Belt and Road. Mm. Yeah, it, it is interesting, this this whole notion of, um, you know, having to choose. I mean, that's the way this debate has been framed, hasn't it, uh, particularly for Australia, that we uh, at some point have to choose between, you know, the US and that, China. That's kind of the the point people see as perhaps inevitable. It's not necessarily inevitable, but it's how you live with both of them when, mm. you know, they're at loggerheads at the moment economically, trading blows via the mechanism of tariffs, tariffs as weapons, and, you know, there will be occasions where both of them ask us to pick a side or or to at least weigh in. Scott Morrison found that in his recent visit to the US, that you're sitting next to Donald Trump and he's going to ask for your support or expect it. And what you say may make him happy, but it's not going to make China happy. Well, I mean, that's a good point, Graham, isn't it? If, if, uh, if this idea that we have to choose is reality, I mean, isn't it the fact that we pretty much did choose last week? Um, that is, the Prime Minister made it very clear where he stands in the trade war. And he did so, I would argue, quite provocatively from US soil whilst often standing next to Donald Trump. I mean, there's a very, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a full-blown trade war going on, it seems, and Australia has declared its position. Yeah, and it's, it's an amazing shift from just a couple of weeks ago when um, the Prime Minister was basically uh, reciting Beijing's talking points on the racism um, around Gladys Liu. I mean, <laughs> he was actually being praised by the Global Times of all newspapers for yes. pointing out Australian racism. But a mere two weeks uh, later, he's, he's gone from, you know, the top of the pops to, uh, you know, because the Global Times doesn't cheer for Western leaders very often, um, but they're certainly not cheering for him uh, right now. And I don't know, and I honestly don't know the answer to this question. How do you choose? And it's sort of been framed in a little way with the the discourse around Hugh White, the idea that we we have to choose. But um, I, look, I don't think um, there's a need to do so, and it's just a very very tricky balancing act that every Australian prime minister will have to manage. It's, well, it's I, a wild ride, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> it is a wild ride. But I mean, I've, I'm a bit sceptical about it as a proposition because I'm not entirely sure what it means, and I mm. and I haven't really seen it sort of quantified or codified. What is the actual choice? Because if the choice is to um, to go with one side or the other, that's probably not going to happen. No. At least not in an absolute sense. We have a great strategic partner, a strategic ally in the United States. Over a long period of time, the Prime Minister was talking about embarking on a new century, another 100 years of mateship, as he he called it. Um, I noted that some newspaper in, in China described 
Australia's position is embarking on 100 years of solitude, <laughs> which was, <laughs> which was, a, you know, pretty much gives a, gives the uh, truth to their response, I guess. Um, but effectively, we have uh, China as our largest trading partner and the US as our strategic ally. And also, let's not forget, the greatest source of direct foreign investment in Australia is still American. So I, I don't know, is, is, is a choice, um, I, I think what I'd, does it even mean? I think I'd prefer to, to frame it as how do we live with yeah. them, you know, they're our, our besties. Um, how, do we, how do we live with both of them at once? When even if you look at what have what are Australia's core values, they pull you, it pulls you in both directions. If you look at our, Australia's commitment to international open trade at the moment, you'd say that's not what Donald Trump's doing, and Australia's always been encouraging of China to you know play by the rules, come come to the party on international trade, but play by the rules. They don't always do that. So what do you do? You 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 have to live by your values as a country, and that means that there will be times where we're in trouble with either of those countries. Sometimes both of them at once. Yeah. So it's almost like we can we can mediate that relationship. We can take what we need from either side. But the, then the question is, can they live with each other? And it's a really fascinating dilemma. I mean, even Trump's trade war is slightly schizophrenic because on the one hand, he's arguing for American companies to, you know, withdraw their production lines, come come back to America or at least to another country. And at the same time, he's arguing, we want more access to your markets. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, he's talking about decoupling. And on the other hand, he's talking about um, concessions that will enmesh the two economies even more tightly together. And that's where this Cold War rhetoric kind of falls down. The mm -hmm. Soviet Union and the U.S., existed pretty well in separate spheres. These are not separate spheres. They're entirely dependent on each other. As, you know, Australia and China are entirely dependent on each other. We have raw materials. They need raw materials. That fact is not going to change anytime soon. And, and Trump's, even Trump's rhetoric has this sort of, has that dualist quality as well, mm. because uh, while Morrison was there, he described, that is, uh, uh, the, the president described China as a threat to the world. But he also regularly talks of Xi Jinping as being a great man, a great mm. leader. Um, we saw a similar kind of dualism in his treatment, uh, you know, his, the way he related with the DPRK, North Korea. Um, you know, little rocket man became his best friend, you know, and <laughs> not, not that it's amounted to much so far. Um, um, you know, maybe the US has been played there. But uh, it, it, is, it is, I guess it's a reminder that one needs to be very careful in dealing with this president uh, because his language is not even internally consistent and he, and he changes his mind. He's very instinctive rather than, uh, rather than procedural and, and, uh, and informed by evidence. And, and the fascinating question at the moment is just that one. How do you deal with this president when you know there's going to be a new president, whether it's next year or in four more years' time, who may get back to more normal sort of relations and play the, you know, look at the world stage through the, the eyes that most other countries look at the world stage through. Mm. So do you, do you, you can't frame your foreign policy just around what Donald Trump's going to do because you don't know what Donald Trump's going to do on any given day. Do you think the, uh, the Prime Minister did well on his trip? I mean, uh, you know, I've been making the point that Australia enjoys free access uh, for its steel and aluminium pretty much uniquely. Mm. Uh, and given that the president is mercurial and, uh, and, and can change his mind on a, on a dime and so forth, um, 
keeping on the good side of Donald Trump and at a very personal level obviously means something. And there's a, that's you know that's one material uh, element of that uh, one benefit for Australia. So, what what do you both think about uh, how well Australia performed? Well, I, I I think you're right, and and you know despite what I just said, I think the one-to-one relationships between US presidents and Australian prime ministers have been important. And you saw that that Malcolm Turnbull eventually talked Donald Trump round on the tariffs question. And it is important to keep that going because, as you said, Donald Trump's mercurial. He, he could, you know, wake up one morning and decide that actually he wants to... These Australians are taking us for yeah, a ride. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's important and I think, you know, Scott Morrison had a difficult job because the way to be nice to Donald Trump is frankly to suck up to him and to tell him he's wonderful and great and that comes with a certain degree of kind of humiliation <laughs> because it's not what we're accustomed to seeing our Prime Ministers doing or talking to other people. So it's it's the balancing act between doing that to keep Donald Trump happy but not overdoing it and maybe risk upsetting, say, China because you go a little, you cross the line a little bit too far. Yeah. Did he need to weigh into China quite as much? I mean, let's be clear, though, that some of the things he said about the the, the need for perhaps new rules for, for China, you know, that China's uh, new status to be recognised as, as a developed nation or at least a newly developed nation. He's made some of those comments before, but it was the place he made them and in the mm-hmm. context he made them, and I suppose the force with which they were made that seems to you know have added uh, an extra element to them. So, did he lean too far in that direction, trying to satisfy the US, or was it uh, legitimate in your view, Graham? Look, I think it's legitimate, but I think he chose absolutely the wrong place to uh, to make those remarks. I mean, the, the the basic argument he's making is is hard to fault. I mean, it is soon to be the world's largest economy. In in, in what sense is it still developing? Um, well, because it's, it's got a huge population. Its per capita wealth is nowhere mm. near the US's. Mm. Yes, and, and, it's, can, and it's only about three quarters of the World Bank's index of I think about twelve and a half thousand. US per capita, uh, and I think that China's you know somewhere around eight and a half nine. So mm. it's 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 short of the World Bank's classification of what constitutes a developed nation. Mm. Yep. It's a long way short of Australia or the US in terms of per capita wealth. Yeah. Yes, the size of its economy is huge, but so is its population. Mm. So you know, perhaps there is an argument there that it isn't developed in the, in the mm. way that... Yeah, I guess. And part of, I mean, the issue is these norms were built up without allowing for the fact that, you know, the world's most dominant economy could also be a developing um, a developing nation. I, I don't think that was sort of foreseen <laughs> when the World Bank was drawing this up. Um, because, you know, obviously graduating to a, a developed economy um, brings with it a whole new set of responsibilities and a whole new set of, of rules that, uh, that China, you know, clearly doesn't want to be subjected to. To. And I think, as you've said quite reasonably, doesn't want to be subjected to. But, but the place that he chose to mount this argument, I think, was a uh, was was really poorly chosen, and, and sort of sets it back in in some ways. I mean, not that China's going to change because Australia says that it should change. <laughs> um, and getting back to the point about the the relationship.
relationship. I think that's been one of the strengths um, of Joe Hockey, oddly enough, as an ambassador, is that he does seem to have developed this very strong personal relationship with Donald Trump. Um, it's true. Know. I mean, uh, Hockey was someone that I think Trump said Joe who at one stage early on, and mm. at least didn't really know him, but he does seem to have you know, he established quite a personal rapport, golf course diplomacy or whatever it's called. And that's what you have to play. I mean, this is this is how this president works, not just for foreign leaders, but even for his own officials, you know, because he could wake up and just decide you're fired, you know, you're gone. So unless As he's he can, done to about three national security advisors yeah, and endless yeah. other officials in his administration. Yeah. But the good thing is you hear about it on Twitter after everybody that's else true. knows. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Going back to the point about developing and developed economies, do we need a new rung on the ladder, mm, in which between. is quite, quite yeah. developed economies yeah. or, you know, well, I, I, not, on not the way. Yet, not yet developed, but terribly influential economies. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Reluctantly <laughs> developed. Yeah. The China um, rung. Yeah. I just wonder whether the, the whole debate, though, is, is kind of a bit silly in the sense that it's occurring in the public sphere. Uh, surely this is a matter more for diplomacy, for quiet diplomacy. Also, I mean, obviously yeah, one of the things about... it involves about, Donald Trump and he doesn't do quiet. <laughs> no, no, but we've, we've, we, we actually gave Trump this particular script, mm. I think. I think you'll find that it was the president following Australia a bit on, on this. Um, and I'm just wondering whether there isn't something, there wasn't a better way to go, given that one of the things that China clearly craves... Uh, as um, you know, the re-emergent uh, power that it is, because uh, that's how it sort of tends to view this, is it craves respect. It craves recognition as the dominant power that it is. And perhaps it was within that rubric that the debate about its status ought to have been framed uh, and with some sort of time frame, some sort mm. of adjustment time frame, like not just right now you need to accept that you're a developed nation and suddenly start complying with all these things. It would be good if you did, but, you know, there are ways you bring um, – in, in diplomacy, there are ways you bring other powers along. And, and maybe with an explicit recognition of how far they've come. Yes. That has been talked about in Australia, what they've done to lift – many, many people out of poverty. Richard Miles said 850 million, I think, which mm. is uh, Labor's um, deputy leader uh, who's just come back from there. Uh, 850 million people lifted out of poverty. I'm not entirely sure it's quite that. Uh, it depends how you count them and how you gauge what constitutes poverty and, and, and non-poverty or affluence. Um, but nonetheless, it is agreed that hundreds of millions of people have been lifted by Chinese uh, economic development. And that's quite a significant achievement. In human history, it's a significant achievement. Uh, but uh, whether it constitutes a developed nation, I guess, or a developed economy, I guess, it's just going to be an ongoing discussion. The other point I want to make here just before we go to a break, uh, tease, tease you um, out on, is this idea of the, you know, the, the sort of tension between Australia and China. And that, that is, isn't it kind of inevitable that there will be tension anyway. I mean, essentially, we're talking about a liberal democracy having a very, uh, very strong and multifactorial uh, economic engagement with a country that is, uh, you know, a, a one-party autocratic state. There are there are going to be values differences between us, and unless one side is prepared to sort of, you know, change in essence, that's always going to be the case. I think I think it is, but it's how you manage it. That comes down to the question of how you manage it. You know it'll be there because you're different sorts of countries 
and Australian politicians, although they do it more quietly than the United States does because of our relative size, are always going to be under pressure from home to raise human rights concerns, particularly when Australians... Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com wondersuite. I caught up in the Chinese legal system. Yeah, so as this happens like, at the moment, yeah. and it happens from time to time. But you know the tensions are going to be there, so you, you think about how you manage them. Yeah, that's right. I noticed the Australian had a uh, um, a report, a news poll, I think it was, that uh, found that Australians favour the US at about two to one over China. That is, that Australians believe our relationship with the US ought to be, uh, you know, take primacy over China by about, I think the numbers were 56% to uh, for, for the US and 25% or something for, uh, for China. So, well, in a way, I thought, well, that's interesting they've got that on the front page because I find it pretty unsurprising, particularly when you think about what's going on at the moment. You think about the Hong Kong protests, you think about uh, the Australian, the, the publicity around that Australian writer, uh, Dr. Young Hung Jong. Um, you've got um, obviously the influence of Hollywood, you know, uh, you know, US uh, cultural engagement with Australia is is very, very strong. It's hardly surprising, really, that Australians find a greater identity with the US than China. Yeah, but it's also of a piece, there was an earlier poll back in June by the Lowy Institute, even before Hong Kong um, kicked off, and it showed that our level of trust in China as a, as a power, responsible power, had dropped by 20 points in one year, which was extraordinary. So it went from sort of half of Australians trusting China to behave responsibly to uh, under a third um, in one year, which was just astounding for me. What, what did you put that down shift. to? Um, I think it's to do with the greater media coverage, the debate around Chinese influence in Australia, and it's obviously hitting home with uh, with quite a lot of people. Um, and even more surprising, you know, people agreeing with the notion that um, you know uh, that China is a threatening power in our region, meaning the Pacific, which surprised me. I've got to say, as someone that that looks at these things. But you, I don't know, it's not that surprising in a way. If, if, if there are a lot of stories about uh, Chinese uh, expansion into the South China Sea, tensions with neighbours in the East China Sea on other islands, I mean, it, it territorial expansion is going to create anxieties in, in other populations. Mm, but just the numbers are so striking. Like mm. to have a 20-point shift in one year is, is amazing. And it had been fairly stable at about you know two-thirds to a half of the Australian population trusted China to be responsible. And, and suddenly you're down below a third. Um, it's, it's a massive shift in public opinion. Let's take a break. And when we come back, talk about uh, some things in another part of the world or in other parts of the world, particularly in the US and in the UK, where chaos seems to reign uh, sort of unrestrained. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. 
or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. I'm with uh, Lyndall Curtis and Graham Smith, and let's shift our attention now to to the US in particular. Uh, and let's start off talking about the issue that had a lot of people talking, a lot more people than perhaps was uh, justified, Greta Thunberg's speech to the UN. What did you make of it, Lyndall? Well, I thought it was a very powerful speech, and I thought the reaction seemed to me like it came from people who'd never dealt with 16-year-old girls because I've been the proud owner now of two 16-year-old girls and I know one thing and that is you don't argue with them. <laughs> they are they are people of very strong opinions and they're not they're not children anymore. They're young, you know, very young adults and they do research and they look into things mm. and they have a whole internet available to them to find things out and they're, you know, the beneficiaries of good education system, which teaches them how to do this. So the reaction that, you know, she's just a child, you can't listen to her, that's, I I find that weird, having, you know, Mm. having children of my own and knowing how much effort they put into things they care about. Um, And I find it interesting that we rarely hear from them. You know, she has, she has a voice. She's not the only one. There are some other particularly girls of the same age making the same case, she's garnered a lot of the attention. And, you know, they're the future. They're the ones that are going to have to clean up the messes that we leave. So why not listen to her? And if that's how she feels, well, take it on board. And it's it's striking that she, in terms of what she actually said, you can't factually fault any of it. Ecosystems are collapsing. We have seen the Great Barrier Reef bleach in, in in massive sort of massive levels. I mean, Sir David Attenborough, an old white man, is saying exactly the same things, but no one jumps up and down and goes, oh, that's a bit extreme, you old white man, you shouldn't say that. So when these leaders, you know, who are also old white men, get up and, and kind of mock her in a way, it's 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 an incredibly bad look because these things she describes are, are happening. Uh, it's just they choose to, to look elsewhere. Wasn't it a case also of, you know, diversion of shooting the messenger? You could talk mm. about the fact that she was 16, the fact that she was clearly very passionate, uh, you know, there was, there was you know, an abundance of that in her, in her presentation. Uh, it was very striking from that point of view. But that seems to be the, the, the things that people have engaged with, that, you know, she was overly passionate. There was talk about her being on the spectrum and that she shouldn't have been, uh, you know, in this, um, in this environment, uh, you know, uh, or, or, everything but the actual content seemed yep. to be up for discussion. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. And A... What's wrong with passion? You know, you can actually do things and move mountains with a bit of passion and policy insight and a bit of force and arguing your point. And B, if she's on the spectrum, so what? I thought we we actually were inclusive and realised that everybody's got something to offer and that you don't get put in a box because you have some sort of disability. You, as, you know, you're as entitled to your very good opinion as anyone else. Yeah. And as, you know, people used to say what, you know, we now call autism used to be recognised as genius. Yes. You know, that's it's only now we, we sort of have this label to say, oh, hang on, you're on the spectrum, look out. Yeah. But, um, you, but you're quite right, Mark. This is, it's, you know, taking the messenger because the message is a very hard one to grapple with for countries like Australia and the United States who have for the past, 10 years, at least at a national level, not been good at grappling with them. 
Yeah, so the, the, it, the subtext really was this is a zealot. This is someone who's uh, who's out of who, whose balance has been lost on this, and who is completely obsessed, and therefore you know you, you, it devalues the message. That was the, I guess, the idea of it. But, but uh, you know, meanwhile, uh, Australia's Prime Minister was in the country but chose not to be at that, at that UN conference because we're told he had no new announcements to make. He then dedicated his speech when he did speak to the UN General Assembly largely to uh, Australia's role on, uh, you know, Australia's response to the climate change problem. Was that very convincing? Well, he did what he thought he had to do and, you know, did as, I think, probably as much as he could given the material he's given himself to work with, which is not as much as other pe- other countries are doing. Did you feel there was, in his own way, a kind of a Trumpist or a Trumpian element to it? I mean, there was. he didn't say fake news, but he was blaming the media for the depiction of what Australia, both internally and externally, for the depiction of what Australia was doing. So we're doing all of these fabulous things. We're holding up our end and... Uh, it's not being reported properly. Mm. And I, I don't think he has too much choice. I mean, you know, the reality is they scrapped the carbon tax that was working and, you know, ever since then, you know, short of this accounting fudge that they've done with uh, with credits, um, you know, our emissions are, are, are going up, which is kind of insane in, in, in the current global context. So he, he doesn't have much choice but to throw to sort of the, the Trumpian tactic. And just before we leave the US, uh, obviously, you know, while the, while the PM's still there, well, virtually as he's leaving anyway, uh, the Democrats finally pull the trigger on this impeachment thing, which is, um, I guess, goes back to the point we were saying before about Trump being a kind of a uh, an explosive individual to be standing near. I mean, not the good side of mm. him, you, you can you can get a lot out of it. But um, is he in trouble? Do you think, Lyndall, or is this, uh, or are the Dem- Democrats going to fall short here and end up with egg on their face? I don't know. I'm faintly obsessed with American and UK politics because it's so much fun to watch craziness happening in other countries instead of (laughs) in my own for a while. You get the sense that there's something different about this, that the president's attempts to get Ukraine to um, investigate a person who is a political rival of the president's because it's so stark is of a different quality and the Democrats have something. They, I don't think they could actually have walked away from. They couldn't have said, no, we won't have a look at this or this doesn't rise to the level of high crimes and misdemeanours, which is the standard for impeachment. Mm. Um, so I think they had to do it. I think they've been dragged there for a while. It, it has problems for them in that it muddies the waters of the billion or so candidates there still are for the Democratic <laughs> primary. Um, but that's, you know, that's a problem for them to manage. I think from what you hear from the US media, and I watch a bit of Fox News as well, just for balance. That, um, or just for entertainment, really. That it is, it is different this time round. It's not so easy for the president just to say witch hunt, presidential harassment, all, all of which he's still saying, and get away with it. Yeah, I saw a uh, piece to camera he did to put out on Twitter uh, yesterday like, overnight, uh, where he is talking about you know delivering the greatest economy in the world, the greatest, the greatest government in the world, all these sorts of things, and it really did have that sense of of a president 
um, being under some degree of pressure that perhaps mm. he hasn't been under or hasn't felt under before. And it is striking, isn't it, Graham, that after all of the thousands of, of broadcast hours, possibly millions of broadcast hours uh, and, and column inches spent on the Russia probe, you know, the, the Robert Mueller investigation that didn't come to an impeachment and then at the end of all of that, we suddenly have the trigger being pulled on these impeachment impeachment proceedings over this phone call to the U, uh, Ukrainian leader. Yeah, no, it's fascinating, and I agree with Lyndall. Like they, the Democrats absolutely didn't want to pull the impeachment trigger until basically they were forced because they know how it played out under Clinton. You know, that yeah, that's his, his numbers actually went up on yes. the Monica Lewinsky thing because Americans, it seems, decided that. Even though he may not have been truthful, he clearly wasn't truthful in some of the things that he said, uh, that it was largely a private matter. That seems to have been the conclusion that many of them drew. Uh, and uh, his poll numbers actually went up as a result of that. Um, yeah. But this is, you know, of an altogether more serious business. You know, we're not talking about, you know, address and, and things like that. It's literally trying to engage a foreign power to interfere in your own country. I mean, that is pretty. High, which was level. what the Russia probe was about too, mm. but yeah. but it just was too complicated and not enough. Of, there there wasn't the slam dunk there. It seems mm. this seems fairly straightforward, and um, if, if we can rely on the evidence, and that's what this whole these committees will will eventually uh, you know be forming their judgments on. Um, but it probably isn't going to result in actual uh, removal of the president. He'll be impeached by the House and mm. then not by the Senate. But no. one, of, one of the things it will result in is hours and hours of televised inquiry at which the Trump government is put under pressure. And because Trump has now cast the net so wide and, you know, his personal lawyer Giuliani's in, the Attorney General William Barr's in, the Secretary of State Mike Pompeo's going to be hauled before, like... Yeah. He's he's managed to cover everyone in, you know, a, a faint layer of dirt that they'll all be called in and there'll be televised inquiries and they'll be watchable TV. So in that way, um, as I heard someone say, the Democrats have actually can actually gain control of the narrative, wrest control of the narrative from Donald Trump in some senses, which might play into their hands. Mm, it's a good point. One of those uh, billions of Democrat candidates, <laughs> as you referred to it, of course, is at the centre of this Joe Biden. So it will be interesting to see whether he is damaged by this, even if it is damaging the president, whether Biden's own standing is affected by it. But I think what we've seen throughout all of the travails of this president, including from before he was even elected, is that his supporters are um, are rusted on and unshakable. Mm. Mm. I mean, he famously said, you know, I could go down Sixth Avenue and shoot someone and, and you know, I'd still be the president. So, yeah. um, you know, I guess he's sort of testing the limits of that with, uh, with, with this case. Yes. And, so it, let- and it's and in a sense, um, the Democrats don't need his rusted on supporters. They need... They're people to turn out and they need independence. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Well, let's go from one eccentric hairdo leader to another one, flick across <laughs> the Atlantic and, and, and talk about Boris Johnson. We, we, of course, we love to do that on this on this program because Brexit is, as you say, Lyndall, is endlessly fascinating. Mm. Sort of it's a whole series of tumultuous events and nothing happening all yes. at the same time. Uh, the Tory party, the Conservative Party, has been holding its uh, its conference over the weekend. Boris Johnson has reaffirmed that he is committed to leaving on the 31st of October, deal or no deal. I mean, you know, is it, 
what, what, what can we say about this? I mean, the, the, the parliament's already passed a law saying that no deal is off the table. Yes. This, this, how do these things add up? Well, they don't, which is <laughs> the fascinating thing about Brexit. Okay, so you've got a referendum and nobody's got a plan for the outcome. You've got a parliament who's constantly knocked back one prime minister who tried to come up with plans to manage it. You've got another prime minister who simultaneously wants a plan and doesn't want a plan, who's been knocked back by parliament, I think, three times on certainly elections and well, done lost, over by the Supreme six Court. Well, critical votes mm. and, a, and a Supreme Court judgment. So yeah. he's got many marks on the loser side of the column, not so many on the winner side of the column. You've got Europe now, so European leaders, including yep. Angela Merkel, saying that they're not prepared to grant an extension unless there is yep. some substantial reason, which presumably would be either a commitment to a second referendum or... Or, or an election, an election that is effectively underway. Um, which the parliament has to grant, an election, and they haven't yet. So they haven't got whatever the preconditions are. I have no idea. It's it's like the term bin fire was made for this situation <laughs> because you don't know what's going to happen because Boris Johnson is kind of at war with his own parliament. So what happens if he goes for a no-deal Brexit but the parliament says he can't have one? Mm. That's kind of the. I mean, what this strikes me is sort of the pointlessness of it all. Mm. Like it's almost we we have this battle that no one particularly wanted, you know, led by a man. It's, it's almost like the Shackleton expedition, you know, like <laughs> going to Antarctica. I will go there, and sure, there will be lots of casualties, but it will be heroic and brave, and it will yeah. be wonderful. But it's like, well, but someone's already been there. Why, are you, you know, why are you mm. going one year after someone made it to Antarctica? Uh, it's it's insane. So, it, it it really has this sort of grand heroism that uh, certain parts of the British establishment were fond of back in the day. It, it just feels so 19th century, this, this, this figure. It does. And it's extraordinary when you think about that um, Boris Johnson was so instrumental in tearing down mm-hmm. Theresa May and he made all these, uh, you know, bulletproof promises that he was going to be able to get this done. And yet no one really believes him. Uh, people in his own party don't believe him. People in Europe obviously don't believe him. And that's where this is sort of come apart, really. I suppose that's where, where the prorogation even, which mm. was extraordinary in itself, you know, proroguing parliament for, for five of the last eight weeks leading up to Brexit was just, you know, was justified on this spurious grounds that he was, you know, putting together a new Queen's speech to outline the government's agenda. The Supreme Court has decided that was nonsense. It was just really a way of the government avoiding the scrutiny of parliament. And I suspect a lot of that reasoning was on the basis that he wasn't in Europe furiously trying to negotiate yeah. the the you know the the new deal that he said was going to sort of underpin the the Brexit the exit anyone who knows me knows I've been whinging about the triumph of politics over policy in Australia for some time I've been boring people senseless with it but this is the ultimate triumph of poli- politics over policy because there is no policy apart from we must leave the European Union the next question is how and nobody knows and nobody still knows. And then you're going to an election which is going to be a people versus the parliament thing mm. and then you, you again set up a test for your parliament that suddenly people don't trust it. And the parliament's going to be given a choice that doesn't even seem clear because because Labor's position and um, you know Jeremy Corbyn's position has been so hopelessly divided mm. all the way along as well. So it's just you can't even really see how an election would be fought and how it would necessarily clarify the situation. Look, thanks so much for joining us today. It's been really great having both of you along. Uh, Graham Smith and Lyndall Curtis, terrific to have you along on Dem- Democracy Sausage and we'll look forward to having you back uh, as soon as we can. All Thank for you, now. Mark. Thanks, Mark. 
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.